Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. As millions of folks around the world enter their third month of adjusting to working remotely, uh, I thought this might be a good time to share the experiences of what it's like to work remotely in tennis when tennis is a sport that exists (laughs) professionally, which it doesn't really currently. And much of the world feed commentary on the tennis matches you watch at home is delivered from a world away from the courts where the matches are taking place. And one of the veterans of this craft is Ravi Uba, who also works on site at tournaments as a freelance reporter. So he has a foot in both the close and the distant kind of work in tennis. So Ravi will describe here what it's like working in broadcasting remotely, uh, the lifestyle of being distant from the courts and the challenges of creating atmosphere for a place that you're nowhere near. So hopefully you guys will find this interesting, maybe a little bit resonant in these times of distance working that we're all living in and general distance. This interview was recorded near the end of this year's Australian Open, as you'll be able to tell, but hopefully it has some uh, some meaning or resonance or something in our lives today. Here is Ravi. I'm thrilled to be joined on this episode by my friend Ravi Uba, who is aware of many different hats in the tennis world. He is this week at the Australian Open as we record this on my aisle in the press room, an aisle made of mine as we walk back and forth, press conferences and whatever else, and share reactions to whatever missed overheads and such happen at once. He's one of those voices in unison, gasping and sighing, and uh, also a voice that I hear actually on the TV and watching at home as a frequent world feed commentator in tennis. Aravi, thank you for being here. Ben, my pleasure. Thank you. For people who may be more or less familiar with you, just how did you get into tennis first uh, in your life, and then how did you sort of make the jump into doing it as a career? In my life, uh, you know, I grew up in Canada, so uh, it surprises me that I actually got into tennis because, as you know, it's a big hockey country. At my earliest memories uh, at home when I was a little kid, probably four or five, watching the U.S. Open in the background when it was on TV, watching Yvonne Lendl, who I think is my idol when it comes to a sportsman uh, when okay. I was younger. So it started from then. Uh, played my whole life, loved playing uh, very regularly, and then got into it, um, you know, as my profession when I moved really to, to London. I was in the uh, early 2000s. Um, first is really writer and then thereafter going into the booth and doing uh, you know uh, share a big share of uh, of commentating and uh, tv work also so how do, so the writing we've Courtney and i've talked a lot on the show so about the writing side of it so i'm more curious about how you make that jump how you go from being on the page what was your first sort of time being behind a, a microphone I remember it well. It was in 2009 i was asked to do um, a davis cup tie between russia and uh Russia and uh, Romania. Mm. And so uh, I, I did that. Hanescu uh, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it was actually Victor Hanescu and Mikhail Yuzhny, my first match. Oh, okay. Uh, so I remember it well. And I think it was because um, they were looking for people who, who just knew tennis and who covered tennis. And uh, as somebody who grew up broadcasting also, I was a reporter in Montreal where I grew up doing TV. I think they knew that. And uh, so they just figured, okay, let's, uh, you know, Ravi, let's uh, let's bring him in. Uh, and I something I wanted to do. So it really started from, from that point. Corey and I have both done a lot of tennis radio, you know, color commentary. So it's not that different from doing TV. But I'm curious what, as you got more into TV, having been a writer, having been a reporter, what skills sort of translated and what ones 
don't translate, what you have to learn on that new in this new role? Well, uh, for example, the attention to detail that you have in, in print and writing, I think that's very helpful when it comes to being in the booth, you know, and digging up statistics and knowing where to look and knowing how to get them to really look for the, the inside stuff yeah. rather than just the basic statistics. I saw you on Tennis Abstract on your computer just as we were walking uh, yes, out here. Yes, and all, all frequent website of mine, yeah, for sure. <laughs> always handy, a great website. Um, that's, that's something that, that I bring with me on the print side. Things that are different, uh, you know, you, you know, when to jump in, jump in and out. Uh, you know, went to queue in, went to queue out, um, and also just broadcasting is a different is a different also voice really when you're as to when you're talking to somebody and you know you know like as we're chatting a bit now it's it's a different voice you put on you have to also have to learn when to kind of hit your spots when it comes to um, nailing down for example phrases after a particular match is done you know you want to go with a big extra um, it's not exactly the lead when when it's, it's so important for a piece a written piece but it's kind of the big finish in broadcasting yeah. so there are little things like that that are differences that I think you become more accustomed to as you do more that's true and actually in print they really don't emphasize most editors or papers or publications don't emphasize endings so much you don't have to do like a real sign off most articles fade out or some editors will just sort of cut from the bottom yeah. which is frustrating when that yeah. happens because uh, yeah. I do try to put endings on stories generally but yeah so when did when did it become a more full time thing for you and how, how did sort of adding work in that particular line is it the same as other freelance work or is it or yeah. is it different yeah no it's pretty much uh, since th- I would say 2013-14 uh, I would say that it's become more of doing that um Rather than writing, and then before it was kind of the opposite. It was doing more of the writing than the broadcast. So I would say since 2013 and 14, I've been lucky enough to do to do a lot, and uh, it's something I love doing. I mean, I, I say it on the air sometimes, uh, tournaments that you know it's such an honor, privilege to be doing it because as a tennis fan, great my whole life, you know, don't consider it a job. I'm very lucky to be doing something I really, really love, and um, that's all I really can ask for. You mentioned sort of how the attention to detail in the writing can help the TV. Does the TV help the writing ever? Does it go the other direction too? Well, it helps in the sense that I, I get to watch a lot of tennis, I believe. Yeah. And so I, I, I think I have a pretty good grasp of the players. And so it, it helps to foster ideas because, you know, for, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, I was watching and I commentated a match on the Brazilian player a couple of years ago, Teliana Pereira. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was digging up homework, uh, doing research for her match when she was playing at home. And I just read uh, interesting stuff about her, how she grew up in really extreme poverty. You know, she didn't have a bathroom in her house. She had a, her, her bathroom in kind of the back garden. Um, and so I thought, well, that'd be a nice idea to do a, a longer feature, a longer story on. And so that story ended up, for example, being written for the Times. I remember that one. Um, so it does help. I mean, and I think, Ben, as you know, the more you, homework you do on any subject, on any player, you realize that every player has a great story yeah. or has a story to tell. Uh, I think that's a lesson that I've that I've learned, and I try to bring that in the booth, especially at times when a match is getting out of hand, when it's not, it's not as dramatic. You know, if it's six one five two, you know, or six one three love, the match is out of control. I think you want to sprinkle in those nuggets, uh, talk about other stuff rather than you know the, the rallies and techniques and stuff like sure. that. What, yeah, that was going to be one of my next questions. What do you do to prep uh, for a match, especially let's say it's a, we'll give you two sort of examples. Let's say there's one that you're doing, I don't know, a final, and it's Osaka versus Halep or something, which mm-hmm. is two players we're very familiar with. Yeah. And then also, if it's, you know, uh, like I think you did the Shenzhen final for yeah. the first week of the year for the WTA World yeah. Feed, yeah. 
Rubakina versus Alexandrova are two players who are much less known. So yeah. how, each of those cases, what would you try to do? Um, you know what, Ben? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't shift for me. Uh, I put in the same amount of time for whether it's a first round with lesser players or, or a big final. Uh, I try to do the basic stuff first, which is um, what they've done in the week. Look up some good stats. Um, what they've done at that tournament, the what, activity at that tournament. What are, what are good stats to you? Um, there. For example, uh, I'll give you an example. So a couple of years ago, uh, Mona Bartel won the title in Prague. I did that event uh, start to finish. She was a qualifier. I was looking if there were scores in the qualifying, and I recognized there might have been a match, you know, where she could have faced a match point just looking by the score. I think it was some. She lost the first set, and the second set was either seven six or seven five in her favor. So as always, I'm interested what happened in that match. Was there a match point? It turned out it was. You know, there was a match point, and I set it on the air, and then you know people kind of picked up on it. Uh, she ended up winning the tournament. So I think you know stuff like that resonates with the audience, and it it really. It really brings it to life. I'm trying mean, to build a story. I mean, too. build a story. I mean, Mona Bartel winning the title in Prague uh, takes on much more significance when you throw on the fact that you saved the match point in qualifying, right? Yeah. So um, that's the stuff that I, that I look at. There are very good websites out there where you can see score point by point so you know exactly what's happening. You know that. Um, but in terms of going back to the prep, same thing. You know, what, what have they done at the tournament? Activity, for example, in years past, you can dig up some good themes. Uh, for example, Svetlana Kuznetsova was taking on Madison Keys. So I also look at head to heads. And the previous two times they faced off, they met in Cincinnati last year. Um, Kuznetsova had leads in the first set on one of them, had a set point, and ended up losing those sets. And the same thing happened last year when they faced off. So, hmm. you know, you, you put that kind of behind you and you bring it up if it happens again. And it did happen again. So it's a theme that was able to be picked up on. And then after doing kind of the basics, I would say, I really look for the nice features and, and you know, anecdotes, who were their idols growing up, just stuff that uh, I think uh, is nice to sprinkle in. What I'm just curious from a nerd prep point of view, what is your, do you have a notebook? Do you have a laptop you work computer. off of for notes? Yeah, It's a computer. And what I do um, is I, I save all my matches on the computer prep. So, for example, the next time they play, I'll just I'll put it into my system and then I'll look at I'll, I'll cut and paste the background stuff, the background stuff. I'll update the background stuff and then I'll update it to, to basically see what they've done at that tournament in the current day. And then you get notes from the tour also. Notes from the tour also. Yeah. I'll, I'll read that as well. Yeah. yeah. When you're going into the booth for a day, what is the day? And you're in London. So you, you can just sort of talk through an entire day from when you get assigned it to like what happens once you get there uh, for doing the remote commentary for World Feed and, where, and just talk about where that is and all that yeah, stuff in your um, Heathrow, right? Yeah, yeah. Most, uh, most World Feeds uh, are done in uh, in London, the men's side and the women's side. Women's side actually now moving to Leeds. Uh, so we're doing that in Leeds this time around. So a typical day, uh, you know, just get up. Um, it depends what time the matches start, right? Because uh, different time zones, uh, yeah. different different countries. You know, it's not you know nine o'clock, ten o'clock in the morning all the time. It's it's a little bit different. So I'll give you an example of Shenzhen. Uh, you mentioned that I did that earlier on. Those were getting up, um, getting up anywhere from one thirty a.m. to around four a.m. in the morning. Uh, I am, of course. So you have to change your sleep cycle for that week. Change yeah. sleep. It's, it's, a, it's a bit tricky, but used to it. Uh, so I would go to bed probably around, try to go to bed. Try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> around 8 or 9, but it's hard to fall asleep at that time. But you pace yourself with naps during the day. I'll do my prep beforehand, uh, the night before, obviously. And then I get in. Um, we'll get into the studio probably anywhere from an hour, hour and a half before. And then if I haven't already done it the night before, which I usually do, I'll write my intro. I like writing intros rather than kind of just, you know, going with the flow. Um, and then uh, I'll read my notes 
before the match to obviously uh, once again become reacquainted with those notes and then uh, let the party begin. You know, when uh, when we go on and we pick it up and the players walk on court, it's it's a tough on the warm up because obviously, especially when you're doing single ball, it's around five minutes, right? So it's it's a lot of time where you have to really fill the air. You do have to fill the air. You don't have to overtalk, but you have to fill the air. So that's when I like to put in some of those basics about you know win loss, you know yeah. we've done head to head, and uh, you know mention the weather, which is important, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then we get to the point where we start. Single ball meaning you're alone in the booth. Correct. Um, we'll get more. I'm get more to that later. But I'm curious, just sort of just from more just lived in things. What does the building you're in look like? What is it? It's big, small. Is okay, the booth big, yeah. small. Is it? Is there coffee machines there yeah, or there is sure, there sure. snacks is there anything what, what are these sort of amenities you have there when you're well, there different, different ones so um the women's one we moved to the new place uh, in Leeds. it's a nice new building shiny new building uh, it's around a 10 minute drive from the hotel a very nice hotel by the way in the center of, of Leeds. they put you up there when you're staying put, when yeah, you're working they, they put us up very kindly uh, and the building itself yeah there's a nice kitchen there's a coffee maker uh, there's a microwave in that in that building. There's no cafe. There uh, was a cafe in the old building, which actually was pretty darn good. And I can tell you, you get a full English breakfast and like a tea, and coffee for the for around three pounds, which is what two two dollars and forty two dollars thirty. Pretty darn good, I got to tell you. So <laughs> that's that's one of the the buildings, the ATP building. It's in London, at a place called Stockley Park. Uh, that's where the home of the Premier League soccer is, you know, kind of where they do a lot of stuff. They have a, a very big cafe, which is very good, I'll tell you. There's a good selection. The price is good. There's a gym in there for some people who can use it. It's not a very big gym, but it's it's a gym there. That one is close to Heathrow. It's it's around probably a 10-minute drive from, from Heathrow. Uh, again, similar-looking building, uh, glass frontage as the one in Leeds is. And then when you do them uh, elsewhere, you do them on site. I was in Nuremberg last year. Smaller booth, uh, probably, f- yeah, you could fit two people in there. Oh, you did on-site Nuremberg. So mo- yeah, almost site. most all, it seems like the WTA commentary happens off-site. But yeah. what, what what made Nuremberg, for example, well, a place to do it on-site? Different in terms of who was putting on that tournament. So it wasn't the home, let's say, it wasn't one of the WTA um Network tournaments, I should say, it was uh, an IMG, tur- IMG tournament, okay. an IMG tournament. So they still do that one, and I did that one on uh, on site. I've done Dubai on site also. Uh, I was asked to do it this year, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but I was just I'm just doing I'm doing a Delray Beach for the men that week, so couldn't do it. So that one would have been on site. That one, uh, the hotel was very nice, and it's 15 minute walk away yeah. from the grounds. You go up into the booth, um, for room for probably three people. Um, air conditioning in the background. AC is a bit tricky in the booth because it can get cold sometimes. Right. Uh, and the vantage point obviously was was great for that. And then you, you take advantage of the on-site amenities. So when you're not, obviously when you're at the stadium and most matches, people at Grand Slams, all the commentary is done on site for the most part. Maybe sometimes streaming. I think ESPN3 used to do stuff out of LA, I believe, during the, uh, the tournament. But it seems like pretty much everything is done on site now and pretty much on court for the big courts at tournaments. But when you're not on site, what are the challenges of being off site and having to try to talk, you know, create atmosphere and mood from a place where it can be thousands of miles away in a different weather, different time of day? How do you, how do you put yourself there to try to make it seem as close as possible rather than being detached? Yeah, you know, Ben, as you cover a lot of stuff and you write a lot of stuff, you're in the stadiums a lot, right? So you cannot replicate, you cannot substitute for the atmosphere. You know, when somebody yells something in the stands, which you ju- you might just hear the background of it on TV. And, and we're broadcasting, but when you're in the stadium, you hear what's being said. Yeah, yeah. Um, you kind of, 
you know, hear what somebody's saying in front of you. You can really get a, a really good sense of what is happening in the inside the stadium. The, the flip side of that, the positive of the other side, which I really enjoy, is, you know, your vantage point for watching a match when you're doing it is outstanding. You know, you're right on top of the court. You've got a great angle. Whereas mm-hmm. when you're watching in the stands, that is not always the case, especially for me when you're sitting at the side, not behind the player. Especially for if you're not – sometimes this is different from being – for me just being in the media section compared to being in a play-by-play booth in a stadium. But, like, if there is something that happened, you know, like I was at the Federer-Sangren match yesterday – and Federer gets an audible obscenity code violation and sort of goes over and talks to Mariana Velievich about it. And I couldn't hear what they were saying. Yeah, yeah. And by being out there and choosing the atmosphere over the you know detail of the broadcast, I lose part of the story. I lose yeah. part of the match. I get other parts, too. I can hear people shouting for Federer and sort of get the sense of the desperation of the crowd and their total apathy towards Sangren. Yeah, yeah. But I can... You know, since the uh, yeah, but I lo- you lose part of the reporting detail. Yeah. But, and I remember this happened at the U.S. Open final with uh, with Serena, notably yeah. reporters who were in the Osaka one. The reporters who were in the stadium had a much worse idea of what had been happening in the match. People yeah. who were in the media room still watching it on the monitors. So there's a trade off. There. there is a trade off, and and having you know still doing a fair bit of writing also. When it's a final, for example, semis, I, I enjoy having being in the, in the media center and watching it because of that exact reason. When something uh, kicks off, you hear exactly what's being said, especially when you're writing under deadline. It's just much, much easier. You want to get all those details in um, rather than missing them out. Yeah. You can get sort of – sometimes I like doing first five games yeah. or something in the stadium and then going back in to watch, yeah. and that can sometimes be a compromise. Yeah. So you're in the booth usually by yourself. Half, half. Half, okay, half, yeah, half. Yeah. So what? Is, so let's start with just the you call it single ball. Yeah. What is the challenge of being there, having the listeners only have to hear, only getting to hear your voice during the entire match? Well, it's it's a big challenge because it's like anything. You know, when you're in a room with somebody, you know, you can have a very nice conversation. It can go back and forth. You yeah. can bring up talking points that you normally would not. Whereas when you're doing it by yourself, um, it's 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 hard to at times really engage. The people, because you don't have somebody beside you to bounce off ideas, to have a bit of banter, throw in a bit of humor. I try to be funny sometimes by, my, by myself when I'm in the booth. Um, and obviously, you don't talk as much for me. I, I try my style is a bit, you know, I would say minimalist. I, I do talk, but I don't talk during points. Sure. Uh, but I'll, but I will, I will kind of stick to what I would normally do when somebody's beside me. Other than the fact that I will have my questions ready for the analyst and you know i want to ask questions i don't want to overload the analyst with questions but at the same time that's i think part of the job of the lead commentator is to you know put anything aside ego and say you know you're the analyst i'm going to ask you questions and sometimes before matches start we'll have a conversation and say okay you know um you know what do you want me to ask is there anything you want me to ask you want me to bring up And i think that can really be good because then it can lead to more more of a dialogue and i think that's what what people like when doing single ball i try to keep it you know, keep it simple. Keep it simple, but but also feeling because I've done my homework that I will throw in some um, some nice background in the players. Like for example, when Alexandra was taking on Rubikina in the uh, in the final in Shenzhen, uh, just talking about the fact that Alexandra spent a lot of time in Prague. She's lived there more than ten years, and she loves loves living there with the green spaces and and all that. So just throwing in stuff like that to keep it not just in a single ball setting, talking about what happened on the point. Because I think that can get a bit tedious for the uh, yeah. people who are watching. No, for sure. And then when you're working with different commentators, some of them you may know well, some of them you may not may know well. And so yeah. how much is it, how much do you try to go for 
know, chemistry, maybe it's the basic word, or how much is it just sort of the same sort of tactics can work with anybody? I can honestly say, Ben, probably having worked with uh, double digits in terms of numbers of analysts, it never been an issue. Never mm-hmm. been an issue because what, what we try to do beforehand is just have a nice chat and get along as people. And uh, I think I'm a pretty, you know, uh, I'm not too difficult, I think, to get along with. So we try to foster that before we get into the booth. I, I'm sh- and sure it, there's some there are some that you have a bit more of a rapport with in chemistry. Some are more amenable to having a back and forth dialogue, and others um, who who may not necessarily want to do that or as much. But no, never I can never been a problem. There's never honestly nothing comes into my head is in terms of coming out of the booth and thinking, wow, I, I don't want to you know I wouldn't want to be with that person. Never, it's never happened. I think I've been very lucky. We hear a lot about Encore Coaching and WTA being was originally definitely introduced as a broadcast initiative when Larry Scott brought it in, you know, 15 years ago or so now, or maybe a little less than that. What does it do for you during a broadcast? How useful or not useful is an Encore Coaching visit? Extremely useful. Extremely useful in a couple of ways. Number one, you know, you, you listen to the coach and what the coach is telling the player in terms of tactics, in terms of if there's anything to do with technique. Okay, that's one thing. But secondly, it was brought in, as you know, really as more of an entertainment tool, wasn't it? Um, so from that perspective, it is amazing because some of the points or some of the conversations you have, uh, you come off the back of that. And if somebody's with you, you you could talk about that for a good three, four, five minutes. Yeah. You know, for example, for example, a couple of years ago when, when Darren came down to talk to Simona in Miami when she was facing Joe Conta, I believe that was a semifinal, lost the second set when she could have won that match in two sets. And, you know, it was a bit of a... It was a tense exchange, right? That was a f- yeah, and, and kind of famous one. Famous yeah. one. And that's what, that was the one that led to a bit of a, a time apart before they ended up traveling once again. And that really, of course, got a lot of spotlight, got headlines on social media. So you come out of that and you're talking about that for a long time. Um, and also you get sometimes some funny stuff that happens. Lauren Davis was chatting to her coach back then, I think different coach. This was on grass a couple of years ago. And the coach just, she was, wasn't, she was kind of losing a bit, a bit badly. And the coach... Um, came in realizing that she was a bit glum and told her a joke, and it, it brought a smile to her face. I remember and, this. I yeah, think. and and that was fun. That was cool. You, you talk, and then off the back of that, you know, you talk about that. You maybe throw in a joke yourself. And uh, again, I love my tennis, but I think it's it's so important that you know there are times in matches um, to just take a bit of a break yeah. and uh, be a bit lighthearted. Is there any use to you when it's not in English? Because I'll ask that because the uh, ATP Next Gen Finals. I believe the first couple of years, I don't know if they kept this for the third year, but mandated that all, because they did theirs uh, through the headset, since so the audio was a little better, and or actually a lot better, and you could all, and it was also guaranteed to be in English. And I'm curious if you would like that rule also, just from a, just from a broadcasting point of view. We can get in, and there's a different sort of competitive fairness is also part of that question too, but yeah, the debate just, I've heard. I mean, just only because of the fact that, you know, I, I can't understand Russian or check, just you know, pick up the basics of, of Spanish, although I can do the French. Um, yeah, of course, because then you want to know what's being said, but at the same time, if the coach and the player, most players speak pretty good English now, but if yeah. the coach can't speak English very well or doesn't have a good grasp of English, then I think it's it's going to be difficult for them to have a meaningful conversation, for them to kind of sort out what they're talking about and what they want to do on court. And then it would be a little bit awkward because you don't want a coach coming on court and talking English, trying to speak English when they're not comfortable at all and when they're not comfortable speaking that language. So I think it's okay the way it is. And, we're, you know, for example, at the WTA, we have uh, different analysts in terms of different countries, right? So we have Olga Savchuk, uh, you know, Russian and, and Ukraine. Sophie Amyak is, is French. 
Um, so people who understand different languages, and it's very handy to have them in the booth. When, For sure. When 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 that's something happens. I remember when uh, Vlaka Ularova was in the yes. rotation. She spoke a ton of languages. Yeah. She was like the Rosetta Stone of, of <laughs> WTA WorldFeed for a while there. Uh, what what does it mean, I guess, when you're on a match, and I don't know if you've ever been on a match, and something controversial happened? I'm trying to remember what it would be. Um, I don't give an example of that. I, I don't want to go in sort of suggesting one, but if you're in a match, let's say something like, uh, I've mentioned this match before, but like a Serena Osaka mm-hmm. kind of final, or even like uh, Serena, remember when Serena came out at Wimbledon and was like, for the doubles in yeah. 2014 and was sort yeah. of stumbling around. Like, yeah, what, yeah. what do you do when you're seeing something on the on the screen, especially not being there sometimes, that you don't... I don't know if you have any examples. Those yeah, are two extreme yeah, examples. No, but um, what do you do when you don't have something... Just in terms of the difference that you have and being live on air is you don't really have time to research live. You have yeah. to sort of react to things as they happen. And I'm curious, I don't know if there's been a default or something like no, that that you've had in a match. I haven't, I haven't had... To be fair, Ben, I haven't had... Much controversy, I would say. No defaults. Nothing like what happened in, in Serena and Naomi. Nothing like what happened with uh, Naomi Brody when she faced Yana Ostapenko oh, yeah. all those years ago. Because she hit the ball boy with the yeah, racket. In, in yeah. New Zealand. Uh, nothing really to do with that. I've, you know, the, the, I mean, things I can think of are, for example, when, um, let's say, a call is made, an overrule, and then the debate comes as to whether the point should be replayed or not. Uh, and I will go into that and just say, okay, I think I thought maybe that was a bit of a bad call, or the point shouldn't have gone one way or the other. That's the that's I think the the most. But nothing really crazy, controversial has happened. I was writing on the Serena Naomi match, so uh, that blew up obviously very big. But you have more time to digest it, and you're not talking, right? You're just uh, able yeah. to analyze and gather your thoughts before you you kind of write them on paper. But nothing nothing crazy yeah. controversial. I just remember especially the Serena doubles one particularly when that was happening. Just feeling like listening back to clips and feeling like bad for the commentators who were on air. They had to like sort of guess what was happening in this moment. It was a very bizarre. Anyway, yeah. I think it's the, one of the weirder moments of the decade that we yeah. don't really talk about. Yeah. There's, I think, streaming for pretty much every court now in tennis, and I'm hoping that means expanded work for you. Um, it's uh, yeah, it, it, on the WTA side, every match. I think on the men's side, that's not the case yet, and I don't know if that's that's going to be in the works to do that. Um, good for our industry, I think, uh, for people who work in it, obviously, because it does mean more work. Uh, and the fans get to see match on court number six yeah. in some, you know, in some tournament. It gives them the opportunity to see their favorite player. You, I mean, you and I are both, I mean, a little younger than you, but we're both of an age where we remember when a tournament was sort of maybe kick in if you were lucky for like one quarter final yeah. in the night session and then you get yeah. to watch the semifinals and final. Yeah. They want to watch every match. Like I don't think people realize like how spoiled we are by this. Every match at tour level being available, being replayable. Yeah. Uh, there's still issues. I, mean, I think WTA probably still needs an app for their TV streaming services and things like that, but the progress is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, for tennis fans, it's the, it's the best time to be around and have this opportunity to watch every single match and the great thing, too, is on the services now, most of the time you have a chance to go and watch it back if you missed it. So if something interesting happens, something controversial, you want to watch it, um, then you can do that as well. And it's something we have here in Melbourne, right, in front of our screen. Yeah. It's, it's a different thing, but, you know, it's called match analysis. So we can go back and see some great points. This morning I was actually re-watching Tennis Sandgren's uh, match points, seven of them against Roger Federer, and just kind of analyzing what happened. Just fun. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great tool for us, and you are a great tool for <laughs> listeners as they watch. Uh, that's a weird segue, but as they watch the tennis. Uh, thank you, Ravi. You can follow you on Twitter at Ravi Uba, Correct. right? Just at Ravi Uba. And 
that they should do that. And thank you guys for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. Thank you, Ravi, for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much to Ravi for being on the show. And thank you to you all for listening. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, the best way is to follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. And you can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. And you can send us questions, comments for any upcoming episode to no challenges remaining at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon where we've gotten a wonderful amount of support from you guys this year after starting up our Patreon page this year. And it's been great and want to give a bunch of shout outs in this episode. First to the people who've signed on since we did our last episode. Those would be Chef McAllister, Fu Xing Lao, Paul Anderson, Alan McKillop, and Greg Rudell. Thank you to all of you. And since this is our first episode of the month of May that we're posting, we have a bunch of monthly thank yous to do as well. So our backers at the on-tour level of Patreon who get our thanks on a monthly basis here on the show, Andrew, Andrew Eccles, Brett Halsey, Brian Rolick, Dermot Harkin, Erica Jane Glamgold, Ava Marshalkova, Jillian Dobson, Greer Millard, Helene DeVitt, Jeremy Blackstone, John Fisher, Kate S., Lori Porter, Rumdwolf Wong, Stephanie Chow, and the Body Surf Podcast. Thank you to all of you there. And thank you also to our Slam Champ level backers who get thanked on every show. Jonathan Weinbaum, Liz Kinnell, Mary Carrillo, Betty, and Chuang Nguyen. And thank you, of course, also lastly to our GOAT backer, J-O-D. That does it for the thanks from us and for the show today. Uh, although our thanks is really never ending. And we will talk to you again soon. A programming update I'm going to put out here to hold myself to it long-awaited ncr vision results are gonna hopefully be out next week when eurovision would have been this year fingers crossed working on them should be a really cool show look forward to that and some other stuff from me and courtney as well bye guys <laughs>